Good morning and welcome to our Sunday morning Bible study here at the Monroe Church of Christ. We welcome all of you who are watching both here locally and uh, wherever you find yourself through our website, through Facebook or YouTube. We welcome you to leave a comment or to leave a question or something. We sure do appreciate you joining us. And um, this study in the Gospel of John that we are working through will probably take us another couple of uh, weeks. I'm going to be gone a few Sundays, and uh, so, uh, well, in the next month or so, I'll be gone a, a couple of Sundays, but uh, particularly next week. Uh, what I hope to do is to be able to, to record these lessons and post them so that we can still keep, keep kind of on our schedule because we will most likely be returning to in-person classes here at some point. And when we do that, we're going to bring the live stream along with us with uh, the rest of our group that we'll be meeting at that time. So we look forward to maybe a little change uh, in the format, but uh, it will not be a change in terms of our reach. We will continue to bring those who have joined us remotely along uh, in doing that. A <clears throat> uh, bit of housekeeping. Last week on uh, Thursday, when we had our midweek Bible study, uh, you might have noticed that about halfway through that, that lesson, our audio completely dropped out. Um, that, was, that was my fault uh, because the, the battery and the microphone died. Uh, it wasn't charged fully. So I guess that means I talk too much if, uh, if I'm, I'm running batteries down. But we're going to take the second half of that lesson from last week and do that one this week. So we will, we will pick up where that dropped out, and we invite you to join that very interesting study during, uh, on Thursday nights about how we got the Bible, how we arrived with these 66 books in our hand to point the way to Jesus. So hope you can join us for that. We continue, though, this morning in our study of the Gospel of John, and we're looking, we're now toward the end of Jesus' life on this earth, and we're toward the, <clears throat> the final moments that he will be with his disciples and be with us in the flesh. And uh, we saw last week him praying, uh, praying to God uh, on behalf of the disciples, on behalf of those who would be left behind when he went away and, and asking God to, to watch over them and affirming some things that John brings out in this, uh, in this text that he has consistently made the theme of this gospel. <clears throat> Let's look at John chapter 17, verse 22. Jesus is speaking in prayer here. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus uh, and John in his writing affirm that Jesus and God are one, that the relationship that we have through Christ uh, gives us a relationship with God as well. And there is a unity between Jesus and God and a unity between us and Christ when we enter into a relationship of faith with him, and therefore we have a relationship with God. But even more so than that, Jesus prays specifically for the unity of, of, of us, of, of his people, his children. And in that prayer, he uses this phrase, perfected in unity. Different translations may use different words there because sometimes we'll see completed or that their unity may be complete. Um, perfection, completion were the same thing uh, in the language of the day. For something to be complete was for it to be perfect, without, without gap, without shortcoming. Uh, does this mean that we're always going to agree on everything? No, 
No, that's not what perfect unity is. Perfect unity is not the agreement on every issue. Perfect unity is the love of one another and the working and striving toward a singular goal regardless of some of those disagreements. We studied the book of Romans previously in our midweek study. We've completed that a few weeks ago, and we saw that Paul very, very heavily emphasized that unity was a significant part of the Christian faith and, and the work of the church. So Jesus himself prays for that in the garden. And why? Why? Because there's only one way to do something that we have to all agree on? No. Because what did Jesus teach? He taught that uh, that the, the gospel was for all. He taught that God loved all of his people, that he wanted all of them to come to him, and that through faith that was possible in Jesus. And so in our unity with one another, we demonstrate the unity that Christ has with God. This is done a lot in Scripture, where we have relationships that, that are developed and designed in this life that are meant to reflect something else about God, a truth about God. Uh, look at marriage. Marriage uh, is something that in our context today is, is more of a legal status. Uh, we have made marriage into a legal status. The government is involved in marriage at every step uh, from licensing and the requirements of those who will sign your license. Um, it's, it, it's become kind of a legal thing, but it does have a cultural component as well. And, and some social components. But marriage uh, and the giving of marriage between two people in a spiritual context is something different. It's something deeper. It goes beyond a piece of paper that, that your state signifies makes you married. It goes beyond whether you're, you can be on one another's insurance. It goes beyond those things. Marriage, if you read scripture, is designed to be a reflection of our relationship with Christ. When you read in places like Ephesians and other places where marriage is discussed and talked about, sometimes it's very easy to say, well, a marriage should look like the, you know, the, 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 the relationship that, that the church has with Jesus, that's, that our, our marriage should be based upon that relationship. And that's not quite, quite what the point of those verses are. The point is that in your marriage, <clears throat> you need to take very seriously the fact that you are a reflection of God's love, that the world is looking at Christians, looking at these people who profess their faith to one another and to the world and judging us. And they will decide if we have any authority in the gospel that we preach. They will decide if we're to be taken seriously. They will decide if what we have to say is true. And they will decide it based on how we live. A marriage relationship is designed, was designed from the beginning by God to serve as a reflection to the world of the glory of God and Jesus and the relationship that we have as a church with Christ, the bridegroom. And in the same way, Jesus is pointing out that the unity of Christians, the unity of these disciples, the relationships that exist between people who profess the same faith serves as a reflection and as a representation of the unity of Jesus and God. So when, when the world sees Christians fighting, our message is held down. Our message is held back. When the world sees Christians fighting, they see that God and Christ are not in union. They see that Christ and the church are not in union. 
this relationship that John has worked so hard in this gospel to try and convince us of, this relationship that Jesus himself continually and continually repeats and, and, and professes to be the case, that God and Christ are one, that Christ and his, his people are one, and that we, as those children of God, should also be one. There is unity throughout, and where unity exists, that relationship is reflected on up that line, and if there's a breakdown in that unity, it reflects upon that whole chain of relationship. If Christians are fighting, it demonstrates to the world that there is not unity between God and man. It goes beyond just our little quabbles and quibbles and arguments. It goes beyond our disagreements. It goes beyond our interpretations and, and, and the things that we fight about. And some of those things are worth discussing. But they're worth discussing so that we can come to a place of understanding and of love and of unity so that the world can see Jesus more clearly. When we argue, we elevate ourselves above the gospel. And we must be very careful not to do that. Paul, Paul speaks of that as well in his writing. And Jesus is speaking of it here implicitly in his prayer to God, asking that God would grant unity among his followers. Why? So that the world can see that they are one, that Jesus and his disciples are one, and that God and Christ and the disciples through Christ have unity as well. Let's continue now. We ended there in verse uh, 23. Let's start, pick up in 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's asking that the, that the disciples will be present with him, that they will follow through with what is about to happen so that they can see this uh, event that has been prophesied, that has been expected, that Jesus has been preparing them and himself for, so that they can see that glory and they can understand. And he affirms there that you loved me. God loved Jesus, his son, before the foundation of the world. And he was there in the beginning, as John notes at the beginning of his gospel. Verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and they will make it, and, and, and will make it known, so that the love which you, uh, excuse me, with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Lots of pronouns there, uh, all to say that God, you loved me, you gave these people to me, I've loved them, I've shared with them what you gave me, and now they will share it with the rest of the world, and there is this relationship that exists. So now, and John describes events very differently than the rest of the Gospels. That's why his is kind of set separately. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are commonly referred to as the synoptic Gospels because they tell a narrative story about the facts of Jesus' life. When you look at the book of Luke, read the Gospel of Luke and start right there in the very first chapter and first verse. He says, you know, everybody's been trying to put together a definitive biography of Jesus to, to show his life and to show his story. Everybody's been trying to do this, Luke says, but I've decided I'm going to write the definitive biography, the one. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple uh, Computers, passed away. <clears throat> he had been the CEO, a couple different stretches of Apple, but in its most successful period in the early 2000s. Uh, he was leading that company. 
as they develop new technology, some of which we're using this morning. Uh, and, and upon his passing, uh, the world kind of reflected on what he had given the world and the innovations and the leadership in that company. And many, many, many biographies came out. Uh, several different books that sought to tell the story of Steve Jobs' life and what he did in, in his professional life. A couple of different movies also came out at that time. Um, in one starring Ashton Kutcher as Steve Jobs, and the other one, I think, was Michael Fassbender. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, that was an Aaron Sorkin uh, film as well, so there's probably a lot of talking. Uh, but um, if you've watched The West Wing, you'll understand. But uh, so we had two, two different movies, several different books. Uh, the book that is often considered the definitive biography of Steve Jobs was the Walter Isaacson Steve Jobs biography that came out uh, and which the, one of the films was, was based on. And uh, that's the case with the life of Christ too. Uh, people started writing to tell the story of Jesus. And they were all setting out to provide the best snapshot of Jesus' life. Luke says, I'm going to do the best. I'm going to get all of them together, put them all together, and write a definitive biography, a synoptic gospel. John is not telling the biographical story of Jesus. Some of these stories are not in the proper order. Some of these stories leave out certain details. And some of these stories bounce from one thing to another because the point is not to tell you how he got from here to there. The point is to tell you what he said and what it means. John is writing long after the story of Jesus has been written and told and shared and passed along. He is writing in a time where the world needs to be reminded that Jesus was the Son of God. And so he does that here. So there's this stark jump. Uh, we don't see it in the other Gospels because in the other Gospels you have uh, events like Jesus going to the garden, leaving the disciples, bringing some of his a little further, and then going further still to pray on his own, coming back, finding them sleeping, all of those things. That's not here. We see that, uh, um, that Jesus comes out of the garden. It says in chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas have, uh, then, having received the Roman cohort and officers uh, from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So here it comes. What Jesus has predicted is going to happen is now happening. What he knew was coming is now coming. Judas brings with him a mob uh, made up of soldiers, uh, officers, and with the blessing of the religious leaders. So Jesus, verse 4, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. Now this is interesting because um, the fact that they were looking for him and talking to him and sharing, well, here's who we're looking for, indicates they didn't exactly know what he looked like. They didn't know which one of these people he was because it, it, the times were different than they are now. When there's someone of prominence who's, who's creating a stir in a, in a community, we often get a glimpse of their face. We figure out who they are and we notice them. That wouldn't have been the case in his time. He's coming and going, he's teaching, and some people saw him and some people didn't, and there were no pictures for them to go on. There wasn't a wanted poster that was up at the uh, post office. 
This was a mob of people looking for Jesus, and they had Judas with them because he knew who, they, he knew, uh, who Jesus was. He could point him out. And Jesus here doesn't try to run. He doesn't lie. He says, this is what has to happen. And he says, that's me. I am Jesus. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with it. I like how John doesn't want us to forget what, what Judas is up to here because every time he refers to him, uh, the one who would betray Jesus, the one who was betraying him, he makes it very clear. That's, that's, that's Judas, uh, uh, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he asked again, uh, he, asked, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. In other words, he's saying, I'm who you're after. Why don't you let my, my friends go? That's not the ones you want. Let them go. And so he's already seeing the fulfillment of the prayer that I lost not one. In other words, he, he doesn't want these disciples to get caught up in what's about to happen. He doesn't want their lives threatened. He doesn't want them to, to, to be under assault when these people are after Jesus. And so he puts himself to the forefront and he says, the, these are the one, I'm the one you're looking for. Let these go. Simon Peter then, verse 10 having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. We see this story uh, in the Gospels as well. Uh, Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Um, there's just a lack of understanding. There's a lack of full understanding to this point of what Jesus has been talking about. Now, he spent quite a bit of time talking with them uh, during this Passover time about going away. And he said, don't you understand? And they said, yeah, we understand now. Where are you going away? Well, they don't understand everything yet. And they're not going to understand everything yet for a little while. Uh, there's some growth that has to take place. As Christians, we are constantly in a state of growth. We are constantly evolving. We're constantly learning. We are not the same today as we were yesterday. We won't be the same tomorrow as we were today. There are things about the word of God, about what Jesus teaches, about his will for our life that we don't understand right away. There are things that I've thought and taught and said and done in my past that I look back on and go, what was I thinking? Well, I didn't understand yet. I didn't have the knowledge yet. I didn't have the clarity, the maturity. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, okay, you can go ahead and arrest him instead. He doesn't throw Peter under the bus. Doesn't disown Peter and say, I don't know this guy. Although Peter will do the same later. No, Jesus with patience and with love says, Peter, put it away. That's not what we're here for. I told you I have something I need to do. Let me do it. Now, in other accounts, he restores the ear of the, uh, of the high priest, uh, of the high priest slave, which is an interesting miracle. And, and those who were arresting him, presumably on the charge of blasphemy because he's claiming to be the son of God, I don't know how they could have quite served that warrant after witnessing such a miracle, but in other accounts they do. And it brings us to verse 12. So the Roman cohort 
And the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Okay, so Caiaphas has been the one who sort of laid out this plot that, you know, we're about to have some trouble with these people, but we can spare the populace a lot of pain if we just get rid of this one guy. Get rid of this one guy, get rid of the trouble, we go on about our lives, return to normal. Uh, an interesting point here about the high priest. Um, the history of the high priest is really interesting and unique because there's so much that changes over the course of time with regard to the old law. There are times where they have the law, times where they don't know the law. The, the priesthood is split, the priesthood is reunited. Uh, the Levitical priests became a bit of a family business at a certain point. You notice there that Annas... Uh, is mentioned. Annas uh, is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. They, and he was the high priest that year. See, they rotated that chair around, and it mostly was rotated around in the family. And so there was some corruption that was a part of this, and some self-serving attitudes. So verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Now, so you have to imagine they're going, this disciple and Peter, they, they follow after Jesus. This disciple knows the high priest and he can get in. He can go in to the place where nobody else is going. Peter waits outside and this disciple says, well, let my friend in too. Can, can you kind of, it's kind of like a velvet rope situation. You know, can you let my friend in as well? And they do. So Peter comes in um, to join the other disciple. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, you're walking in to the presence of the high priest who is about to pronounce judgment on the man you've been following, there is fear. There is uh, a great deal of anxiety. And Peter, in response to that question, and perhaps not even realizing what was happening, I mean, he knows that Jesus has told him, you're going to turn on me. You're going to deny me. You're going to say you don't know who I am. And Peter, in this moment, apparently not cognizant of that, says, I'm not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Now, the way Jesus responds to questions, very interesting. Doesn't really defend himself. Doesn't defend what he said. They're asking about his teaching. What is it you've been teaching? What is it you've been saying? What is this trouble you've been stirring up? Well, they know what it is. They're looking for him to admit it. They're looking for grounds to get rid of him. And he says, you ought to know. I haven't said anything quietly. I haven't been secretive about my teaching. All these people have heard me. Why don't you ask them what I'm teaching? See, they're trying to trap him, and he doesn't let that happen. 
So when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? So now we have our first sort of physical assault on Jesus for his answer. Because he violated the custom of respect for the high priest. You see how the religious elite are exerting their influence and their force on Christ here. Jesus responds, if I've spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? He says, if I've said anything wrong, if I've lied, if I've been disrespectful, okay, show me. Otherwise, you got no reason to hit me. So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now we're going to see the rest of the story about Peter here, verse 25, and then we'll wrap up. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, okay, so now we've got some family drama here, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and that makes three. And immediately a rooster crowed. Ooh, that's an ominous and eerie sort of description, almost cinematic, uh, because there's this implication. (sighs) Peter remembered. Peter remembered what Jesus said. He had done what he said he would never do. And how much are we like that? How often do we look at our life and at our, our Christian walk and say, well, I'll never fall away from this. I'll never turn from Christ. I'll never let my faith be shaken. I know who I belong to. I know what I believe. How often do we fail? Jesus has told us we're going to fail. We've said, no, we're not going to be like those other people. But we do, over and over, because we're humans. We're flesh and bone. We're imperfect. We fail. And where is Jesus when we fail? Even in the midst of his suffering and his trial, even in the midst of what will be the most difficult hours of his life. Jesus is still thinking of those he loves, praying for those he loves. And even up to his death, our names are on his heart because what he's doing is for us. You know, if if I were Jesus, and you should be glad that I'm not, uh, and I knew that Peter was going to deny me, and he was going to do it while I was bound and beaten and hauled off for a trial, a sham of a trial and a crucifixion. I'm doing it for him. Jesus is about to give his life for all of us, all of humanity, all of mankind, including Peter. And in the midst of doing it, Peter can't remain faithful for just a few hours. He's already denying Jesus when Jesus is about to die in his place. If that were me, I'd call the whole thing off. Who needs this? Who needs this? But Jesus did it anyway. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. He knew that you and I were going to sin. He knew that you and I were going to have moments in our life where we were so far from God and did not know Jesus. But he did it anyway. He didn't do it because... He had any expectation that we would be able to live up to it. He did it because it's what we needed, whether we act like it or not. He did it because of the immense deep love that God has for each and every one of us. 
and that comes to us through Christ. He died with your name on his heart, knowing all the things you've done and will do. He did it anyway because he loves you, because God loves you. Even Peter, who denied him in his hardest hours. We're going to close there for today. And we will have our worship service in the 11 o'clock hour. We hope you'll join us for that. We'll continue our series on man's search for significance. That will come in the 11 o'clock hour. We thank you as always for joining us and hope you have a wonderful Sunday morning.